He hacked at the ground with his rough stone axe. He hacked at the weeds and at the bushes. He hacked till the sweat poured off his forehead and calluses rose on his palms. He hacked until he could hear his heart pounding in his ears, but still the slithering thing slipped and squirmed away. So he sank down onto a stump and waited for his breath to return and his heart to stop racing. He wiped the sweat from his brow and he stared at his hands. And that's when it all came back. The crushing memory of before. The pain of the paradise he'd lost. It was like a bad bruise. It hurt to touch it. But touching it reminded him that it was there. Sometimes a smell would trigger it. Sometimes it would wake him in the night. Today it was simply the sight of his hands. Knuckles gnarled and cracked, palms rough and swollen, veins running down their backs like tree limbs. Were these the hands, he wondered, that once tended the garden? The hands that stroked the lion's mane and traced the zebra stripes and danced across the rhino's hide as he gave each one its name? Were these really the hands of Adam? Sometimes it seemed impossible. Sometimes it seemed too good to have been true. And sometimes he wondered, how had it happened? How had he let it all slip between those rough and dirty fingers? As if to answer the question, a voice called from across the rocky field. Yes, he had blamed her once, blamed her more than once. But he knew now that the fault was his as well as hers. Eve called again and then slowly walked towards him. It was almost impossible to see her as she once had been. The years and the children and the endless toil it took to survive had erased forever the woman who had danced happily in the garden. He shut his eyes. He shut them tight. He shoved his fists into the sockets and for a second, just a second, There she was again, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, lying beside him on the soft, wet grass at the dawn of their life together. He remembered touching her hair and her lips and tracing the shape of her face with his fingertips. And he remembered the prayer that he had prayed. Thank you, creator, he had said, for this face and for this morning and for all the mornings to come. Adam, the voice called again. Adam, why are you sitting there? Get back to work. We have a family to feed. Adam winced. There was still a trace of that other Eve in her voice. The same voice that had called out so many years ago, called out across the garden. Adam, come quickly. There's someone I want you to meet. That voice was so sweet. The face so innocent and gentle. And she skipped towards him, excited like a foal or a fawn. And she took his hand. Oh, he could feel the fingers still. And she led him laughing to the knowledge tree. There was no reason to be alarmed. No cause for concern. Those words had no meaning then. All was trust and goodness and love. How could he have known? 
How could either of them have guessed that their new acquaintance would teach them the meaning of those words and many more awful still? The serpent was a handsome creature, confident, articulate, poised, but there was venom in his words. But at the time, his argument seemed reasonable. So the creator forbids you to eat from the knowledge tree, the serpent had asked. He says that if you do, you will die. Well, what does he have to hide? That's what I want to know. And if he truly loves you, why would he want to keep anything from you? I suspect he's afraid. Afraid that if you eat from the tree, then you will know as much as he does. So why don't you taste the fruit and find out for yourselves? And even now, after all the pain and the toil and the years away from the garden, there was still a part of Adam that wanted to be convinced. Perhaps the serpent was right. Perhaps the creator was just jealous of what he knew and didn't want to share it. Was it so wrong to want to know? To know evil as well as good? Adam looked up. His wife was staring at him. And the answer was there in the lines on her face and the sadness that never left her eyes. No amount of knowledge could make up for what those eyes had seen. Their forced exile from the garden. The angel with the fiery sword who made sure they could never return. The desolate land that they were condemned to till. And the murder of one son by another. Adam looked away and he shook his head. His children had often asked him, what did the fruit taste like? Sweet like an apple, sour like a lemon. How could he have told them the truth? Told them without seeming a fool that it smelled of decay, that every bite was rotten, that it tasted like death, death and regret. What if? What if? What if? What if they'd ignored the serpent? What if they'd obeyed their creator? What if they'd never tasted the fruit? Would he still be wrestling with the lion and running with the zebra? Would he still wake up each morning in the soft, wet grasp and trace his finger across Eve's forever beautiful face? The thought was too much to bear. And so he picked up his axe again and began to hack at the earth. And Eve grunted her approval and turned to walk away. But once she was out of sight, he started listening again for the hissing one. The creator had made a promise. Adam remembered it. The handsome one, the confident, articulate creature would lose his limbs and crawl on the ground. And one day, surely he was remembering it right. One day, Eve would bear a child who would crush the serpent's head. But who was this child? And where was this child? All Adam could do was hope. Hope that the promise would come true. Hope that someone someday would destroy the serpent. Hope and keep on hacking. Hacking at the ground. Hacking at the bushes. Hacking at the weeds. Because hacking was easier 
than yearning for what might have been. Because it was better than longing for the life he'd lost when he'd had to leave the garden. The story of humanity began in a garden. A garden of regret. What was once paradise became marred by sin, brokenness and death. And we all know this regret. Regret at things we have said and done in the past. Regret for broken relationships and the harm we have done to others. Regret that we have failed to be all that we hoped and that we can never quite get as close to God as we long for. Regret, shame, guilt, we all carry it. We might struggle to define what sin is, but we know well the consequences of it. And of course, the greatest pain of all is that we know that we just cannot make everything right on our own. Paradise has been lost and it's now out of our grasp. Wonderfully though, the Garden of Eden is not the only garden in the Bible. There is also the Garden of Gethsemane. The garden of our reading this evening. Do you remember how John started his gospel? The very first words were, in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And it was a direct allusion to Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, which also begins with those same words. And when we looked at that passage a year or so ago, we commented that John did this deliberately to say something important. Genesis tells the story of creation and how it was ruined by human sin. The Gospels tell the story of Jesus and how he came to rescue it from all that sin. In Jesus, we find the new beginning that we need. So here in our passage this evening is another garden. A garden where through God's grace, Jesus begins to take all that has gone wrong with the world and starts to put it right. If Eden was the garden of regret, Gethsemane is the garden of forgiveness and hope. The forgiveness and hope that you and I both desperately need. And tonight we're going to explore a little of what went on there. Do you remember how the Garden of Eden was described in Genesis? It was a wonderful place, full of beauty and life. But the most precious thing of all about it was that it was the place where God and humanity got to dwell together and enjoy each other's company. Genesis tells us that God used to come in the cool of the evening for a stroll around the garden with Adam and Eve. You see, God has always loved his people and his greatest desire is to be with us. This is the situation that he is trying to restore. It's no coincidence then that as John begins to tell the story of this second garden in the Bible, this is where he puts all the emphasis. 
Here, in this garden, human beings are again meeting with God. This is a terribly sad moment in the Bible. The arrest of Jesus. But notice how John insists that in every moment, it is Jesus that is controlling events. Even in this darkest moment, he remains Sovereign. Judas arrives with his posse of armed soldiers and religious officials, all the might that human kingdoms can afford. But just listen to what John writes in verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Just take that in for a moment. Jesus knows in advance exactly what's going to happen. And despite knowing that, he doesn't run away or hide in the bushes like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Quite the opposite. He calmly gets up and walks out to meet it head on. It is Jesus that kicks these events off by questioning the arresting party. Can you see, Jesus is initiating everything here. He's in total control of this moment. And then in the face of all these human weapons and violence, we get another incredible revelation of Jesus' divine authority. Jesus is no weak victim here. He is still God Almighty. Jesus questions, who is it that you want? And the posse reply, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. Well, actually, that's not quite what Jesus said. Because in the original Greek, Jesus says this. I am. I am. And I hope that we've now read enough of John's gospel for us to get a tingle running down our spine when we hear those words. I hope the hairs begin to go up on the back of our neck. I am. We have learned over the last year that those two words mean everything. I am. The divine name. The personal name of God. The name that was given by Almighty God to Moses in the wilderness of Exodus 3. This is the name that Jesus has used of himself no less than seven times in this gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And when Jesus says he is the I am, he is saying without any hesitation or doubt that he is God. The holy, awesome, majestic God. The creator and sovereign of the universe. And just look at what happens when he reveals this identity. Verse 6. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus says, I am, 
The armed soldiers and the religious experts and the betrayer Judas all fall to the ground. Now, we have seen what happens when an armed unit go to arrest someone today, haven't we? It's quite often on the news. They smash down the door with their battering rams. They pile in with their guns and their batons. And before the criminal gets arrested, he normally gets a good kick in. Utterly dominated. But here, it's the exact reverse. This group of bloodthirsty, vengeful men turn up with all their weapons... But when they get to Jesus, they don't throw him on the floor. He sends them to the floor. Not through violence, but just by stating who he is. And John is pleading with us to see that even in this moment, Jesus is fully God. And when people came into his presence, there was fear at the presence of the divine. Even in this moment of his arrest, the forces of evil fall before the feet of the sovereign king. It is an extraordinary moment. And as the story goes on, Jesus continues to call the shots. Next, we find that it is him giving out the orders rather than the armed guards. Verse 8 and 9. If you're looking for me, Jesus said, then let these men go. And this happens so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. We see again, it is Jesus who has the power. It is Jesus who is calling the shots. And here he uses his power and authority to protect his followers, just as he had said he would. And so I say again, even in the darkest hour, it is Jesus who remains in control. And that is because he is truly God. In the Garden of Eden, God came down to walk with the people he loved. In the Garden of Gethsemane, God came down to die for them and rescue them from their sin. And this recognition of Jesus' sovereignty then leads us on to another important lesson from this passage. In the Garden of Eden, everything went wrong because Adam and Eve refused to submit to God. Do you remember the story? They were given one command. One command amongst a paradise full of permission. And they broke it. Adam and Eve were not prepared to submit to God because they wanted to be God themselves. And that arrogance and that selfish self-importance is still what lies behind every single one of our sins today. The sin of Adam and Eve is the sin of us all. But now look at Jesus in this story. Despite him being fully sovereign, Despite him being the supreme, the almighty, the I am, Jesus uses his power to do exactly what we as human beings have refused to do. He uses his power to submit. Jesus had lived his whole life as a servant. He'd helped those in need around him. Just a few short hours before this moment, he'd got down on his knees and he'd washed his disciples' feet. 
the most menial task of all. And now in the darkness of Gethsemane, he reveals that he has come to submit his life even up to death. (coughs) Despite Jesus staying put and calmly walking towards his attackers, Peter feels he must fight back. Peter is still acting like Adam, still refusing to submit. So he takes out his sword and with a mighty swing, he cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest. And so it is over and over and over again that when human beings refuse to submit to the things of God, violence and bloodshed are never far away. Human rebellion always, always leads to damage and destruction. Just look at Ukraine. Look at Gaza. Look at the streets of our cities. But Jesus is having none of this. He immediately rebukes Peter. He commands him to put his sword right away. And then he gives his reason. Verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus is totally sovereign. He is God's son, the I am, the king of the universe. But he has come into this garden to save human beings. And he's going to do that by acting in the exact opposite way to Adam and Eve. He is going to fully submit. He is going to fully submit to the Father's plan. He is going to lay down his life. What love we see here. What grace, what mercy, what sacrifice for you and for me. It really should humble us all. So the sovereign of the universe, the great I am, comes to the garden to submit his life to death. Why? Why does he do this? What is going to be achieved? And our passage ends with hints of all that will soon take place. Jesus has come to deal with humanity's sin. The very sin that has haunted us with regret ever since Eden. And he's going to deal with it through substitution. Remember what Jesus has just said to Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now the cup that Jesus is referring to here is the cup mentioned by the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. In the Old Testament, God's wrath at sin was symbolized by a cup of potent wine. And when human beings were judged and found guilty, they were made to drink that cup. And it left them reeling and staggering like drunkards. And this cup of God's wrath was an image of judgment. Divine judgment for our appalling behaviour. And it was a cup that no human being would want to drink from. And here Jesus uses that same symbolism to explain what he's doing. He is going to drink that cup of judgment for us. 
He is going to drink it right down to the dregs until there is nothing left. And he's going to suffer the ill effects of it. He is going to take our place. He is going to absorb our guilt. He's going to take all the punishment we deserved so that we can go free. It is an act of substitution. And John goes on to give a few more hints in this regard. Straight after his arrest, this detachment of armed soldiers hauled Jesus up before the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. In Jesus' day, the job of a high priest was to offer sacrifices to God so that people could be forgiven for their sin. The high priest would then lead the people into worship, into God's presence. And knowing that, just sense the irony of this moment. Because here is Jesus, the true high priest, being sentenced by the false and phony ones. Here is Jesus, who is going to offer his own blood as the sacrifice that washes humanity clean. He's going to forgive us our sin and lead us into the presence of God. Earlier in the gospel, John had recorded Caiaphas making a telling statement. He had no idea what he was saying at the time, but the Holy Spirit led him to say something incredibly profound. In John 11.50, Caiaphas said, You do not realise that it is better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. And in the original context, Caiaphas was talking about killing off Jesus so the Jews could live peacefully with the Romans. But his words were true on a much deeper level. Ever since the Garden of Eden, death has been the just punishment for sin. And that sounds harsh, but there's a reason. Because sin separates us from the Holy God. The God who is the source of all life. Jesus has come into this garden to die the death that we deserve so that we might live on through him. It is salvation by substitution. And now that he's been arrested, the momentum cannot be stopped. Jesus will die on the cross. For us all. So I hope that we have now grasped the enormity of what is going on here. Here we are in another garden. Jesus is beginning to undo all the damage done in the first one. Gethsemane is the salvation for Eden. God's great plan is coming to its climax. The full extent of his love is about to be seen. And soon all those regrets that we've carried with us through our lives will be no more. So how do we respond? How do we respond to our saviour Jesus? How do we respond to this perfectly innocent one who allowed himself to be arrested on our behalf? Well, we've looked at three points tonight, so I finish with three suggestions. In Gethsemane, we see Jesus to be totally sovereign, so let's trust him. 
Let's trust him, even in the dark moments of our lives. In Gethsemane, we've seen Jesus submit his life to his father, even up to death. Well, let us repent of our sin and submit to God as well. Let's invite Jesus into our lives and set out to follow him as Lord every day. And in Gethsemane, we see Jesus begin to substitute his life for ours. So let's give him worship and thanks. Let us choose to love him with all our hearts and to love others like he has loved us. Jesus is the sovereign king, the submissive servant, the loving saviour. Let us worship him tonight. And let us seek to make him known to all those who don't know him yet.